Uh, with that said, let me uh, say a prayer as we open up here. Father, we love you. Your word is truth. And sanctify us by your word. God, I pray that you would bless this time. I pray, God, that you'd be glorified as I share. I thank you for the opportunity to speak. And I, God, I just thank you for a, a clear mind that works. And I thank you, God, that you guide us by the Holy Spirit in all truth. Now bless this time again. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So with that said, uh, I'm going to be doing just a slightly different presentation than a testimony, but uh, I want to be real clear. Go ahead and hit that first slide. And what I'm hoping to accomplish today, uh, what I'd really like to do is just present to you a study that I did on primary source material of the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, documents that they have written. And also, uh, in doing that, I would like to step back and identify patterns of redefinitions or misuse of evangelical language that they commonly apply within their primary source material, therefore conflating Christian terminology. Uh, after I do that, I will also provide for you what I believe is an effective labeling system so you can identify these common characteristics in their redefinition of evangelical and uh, Christian terms. And then finally, because I think every time we speak, we want to have some application, I'd like to lay out for you what I believe is a very effective means uh, and way you can use this in having healthy dialogues, meaningful dialogues, God-glorifying dialogues, and uh, be able to reach people because you've now been equipped with just some knowledge that I think is vital to us. You go ahead and hit that next slide. So um, why is this topic important? Well, the reason that I think it is so important that we unpack the language that is used by Jehovah Witnesses, and this isn't just unique to Jehovah Witnesses. In fact, I've found commonality within other cult systems that they do the same thing. We are going to exchange meaning through the use of language, right? We are uh, symbol exchanging beings. God has made us that way. But it's very clear that when we speak with people about things in relation to God, we're going to use specific terms. In Christian circles, we often say Christianese. And the reality is, unfortunately, in many of our churches, we've seen a, uh, a pushback to using theological terminology, or we've seen a, a negation of that. Uh, as Christians, we should embrace theological terms because they're meaningful to us. This is important, though. As Walter Martin states in Kingdom of the Cults, the student of cultism then must be prepared to scale the language barrier of terminology. If you've read the Kingdom of the Cults, the very first chapter actually is dedicated to educating readers who want to learn about cults 
with terminology. When you speak to anyone who is in a cult, you'll often find that they have different meanings for the, different, for the same phrases that you use, and it can become incredibly frustrating. Robert Bowman, who will be speaking here tonight in his 1995 book, Jehovah Witnesses, says this, Frederick W. Franz became the fourth president of the Watchtower in 1977. With Franz at the helm, the major effort was undertaken to recast much of the training of public Witnesses were taught to express their beliefs in more biblical, evangelical-sounding language. Jehovah Witnesses have declared from their president in 1977 that they needed to have more biblical-sounding, more evangelical-sounding language. Therefore, it is vital for us if we're going to engage someone who is a Jehovah Witness, knowing the reality that they have, uh, again, misapplied, misrepresented, and redefined common Christian terms. Uh, that way we're actually able to get through them. Uh, John Frame in his Systematic Theology says, look, theological language is difficult to understand. So as Christians, not only do we need to recognize that we should have an ability to use Christian terminology correctly, cults are going to redefine that terminology. And go ahead and hit the next slide there. Uh, Martin asserts in Kingdom of the Cults that language, to be sure, is a complex subject. We're all agreed upon this. One of the distinctive elements of a cult, as noted by Irving Hexham in his Pocket Dictionary of New Religious Movements, is this. He says that one distinct element of a cult is their purposeful distortion of theological language and concepts, and stressing the importance of accurate language, John Frame contends this, but true language is language that rightly represents reality, that expresses the way something really is. Truth, in this sense, is the proper correlation between language and reality. Go ahead and hit the next slide. So again, as, as simple exchanging beings, you and I, Humans rely on accuracy of language. As Christians, we recognize that language is an accurate and real transporter of meaning. In other words, our presuppositions as evangelicals are very simply clarified when it comes to language. We believe that words have meaning. Words have objective meaning. We believe that there is honest use of terminology. When we deal with a cult, we would have to address them with that reality. But we need to go into those encounters recognizing that there are systems and religious structures that do not accurately represent terms, and those are faulty systems. When you go into a dialogue with a Jehovah Witness, you're one of the foundational positions you're always going to realize is they're not saying what I'm saying, but they're using the same terms. So this study is important because we need to address that. In fact, even in our dialogue itself, we can address that reality. Is language an accurate transporter of meaning? Yes, it is. From a Christian worldview, I can say so. So there are objective terms. You can go ahead and hit the next slide. 
So let me jump real quick now that I've kind of laid the foundation for what I'm going to be sharing. I want to share with you the study that I conducted back in 2016. Um, what I did was I grabbed 12 different primary source materials. Again, those are uh, first source materials of the Jehovah Witnesses, and I'll share that here in just a bit. And I did what's called a uh, generic analysis, which is a research methodology informed, of course, by communication research. We all recognize what genres are, genres of music, uh, genres of film, all right? There's a Western film. Um, there is a you know humorous film. Uh, there is all kinds of different types of music, jazz, country, uh, hip-hop. Those are all different category systems. What a researcher does when applying the generic model to primary source material is we're trying to draw out what types of categories exist within the content that we're dealing with. I know this might be a little bit boring, but I want you to understand that Dave didn't just make these things up. He found through properly practiced research methods, these categories that I'm going to present to you. Now the key to developing any category system is the immersion of a critic into a rhetorical artifact. And so what I did, and you can go ahead and hit the next slide. Uh, actually, go ahead and, um, yeah, that, that's fine. Uh, what I did was I read numerous primary source documents. I tried to develop a category system from reading these primary source documents. In other words, I wanted to see were there ways, were there modes in which the Jehovah Witnesses particularly used evangelical terms within their literature but they did so in a dishonest way, thereby beginning from the foundation to lead their people astray. If we take what Franz said, that we need, that Jehovah Witnesses need to be more biblical and, e and evangelical-like, then that very foundational position should be evident when we deal with their research or with their material from the very beginning. Go ahead and hit that next slide. Just to give you just one more little brief definition, uh, and I thought this was important. I, I've used the term primary source document. Um, primary source documents are immediate first-hand accounts of a topic from people who have had a direct connection with it. Newspaper reports by reporters who've witnessed an event or who quote people who did, speeches, diaries, letters, interviews, uh, what the people involved said and wrote, original research. So, uh, go ahead and hit that next slide. But from the 12 documents that are listed here, and I could read them to you, um, the Watchtower's um, book, What Has Religion Done for Mankind? Of course, the New World Translation of the Christian Greek, the Watchtower, just a, uh, a very generalized Watchtower that was available online. Uh, what Does God Require of Us? Another book that was available online, Insights and Scriptures, Volume 1. Um, another issue of the Watchtower, the writings of Franklin Rutherford, Let God Be True, uh, the Watchtower from uh, 1987, and a few other writings. I began to read each of these writings numerous, uh, at least as sections numerous times, not every single one did I read numerous times, but sections that stood out to me. And from that I developed what I believe are seven typologies of deceptive techniques that are used by the Jehovah Witnesses when trying to sound Christian. In other words, they'll misrepresent our terms in seven categorical ways. So, uh, from these redefinitions, essentially five categories or five major areas 
uh, developed. Um, in other words, after reading these 12 documents, I noticed that there were five specific places where Jehovah Witness material redefined Christian terminology. And so what I'd like to do with you all is go to some of these primary source documents, read from them, and then demonstrate that there's been a redefinition of what would be orthodox Christian terminology. Again, this is something that you can point out to them. I think, again, every single one of us, as we study any cult system, as we study any uh, variant sect, the first place we should go, if we really want to understand them, is their writings themselves. Well, I think it's good for us to look at what other people have written on them, and of course I have done that. Going to their primary source material is going to give us the best understanding of actually who they are, what they say, and how they say it. So. Uh, the competing definitions that Watchtower literature continually tries to redefine are terms for scripture, what do they mean by scripture, uh, terms for God, what do they mean when they use the term God, uh, Jesus, what do they mean when they say Jesus in their literature and even in dialogues, salvation itself and the Trinity. If you noticed here, what you actually have is basically our four foundational Christian beliefs that uh, God is triune, of course, that Jesus Christ is God, fully God and fully man, that salvation is by grace alone and the Bible is God's word, are all going to be attacked. Those foundational doctrines and what Jehovah Witnesses mean when they talk about them are going to be understood where? From the Watchtower uh, Bible and Tract Society itself. So let's go ahead and jump into some of these redefinitions. And I want to make sure that I don't go over time, but I also don't want to go too fast. So uh, with that said, let's look at the redefinitions for the term scripture. Now, when Christians talk about the term scripture, what do we mean? The 66 canonical books that were, of course, first voted on in 397 at the Council of Carthage. Uh, those are the 66 canonical books that Christians, Orthodox Christians, affirm. However, when Jehovah Witnesses speak about Scripture, they do so with the, again, underlying foundational position that when they talk about Scripture, it means something different. This is seen very clearly uh, in, of course, a statement that was made by Robert Bowman. He says, when Jehovah Witnesses claim to regard the Bible as the absolute word of God and to be the base, excuse me, Jehovah Witnesses claim to regard the Bible as the absolute word of God and to base all their beliefs on it. So if you talk to a Jehovah Witness, they're going to say, yes, of course I believe the Bible. Uh, that's something that we, of course, as Jehovah Witnesses believe. But what do they actually mean? Well, when you jump again into what has religion done for mankind, published in 1951, of course we all know that Jehovah Witnesses say, nah, Actually, the New World Translation is the only real understanding of Scripture. And here's, again, just a, a brief quotation or an example of how they redefine what Scripture is. Outstanding among Bibles in the, is the New World Translation of the Christian Greek Scriptures. Accuracy, uniformity, clarity, up-to-date language. Mark this excellent work. Bible study aids without equal make it an indispensable help to sincere searching students of God's word. Notice there in the, again, uh, statement on the New World Translation that not only do they jump out and say the New World Translation, but they also begin to say, well, it's really only best understood with these Bible study aids that we have. The cultish element of the witnesses begins with the way they present their translation of the Bible. By their account, 
They are simply correcting theology where Orthodox Christians have gone astray. Go ahead and hit that next slide. Uh, Let me give you some more evidence for redefinitions of Scripture. And this one comes directly from the New World Translation um, and the preface to the 1950 version. The endeavor of the New World Bible Translations Committee has been to avoid the snare of religious traditionalism. Essentially, when they talk about their translation of the Scripture, they're giving you this idea, look, this has to be better. Why? We've avoided religious traditionalism. The underlying element projected by the society, and that is that historic Christianity has gone astray because it never really had the true translation of Scripture. The deceptive move is obvious. When Jehovah Witnesses talk about Scripture, the society acts as if their translation is better, all of their translations are gone, and so the only true Scriptures exist in their one single translation. Just to give you just some further evidence, uh, Robert Bowman also explains in his book, Jehovah Witnesses, Jehovah Witnesses must accept every new teaching of the governing body without question, even if it contradicts their long-held view or appears to them to be unbiblical. Now, you and I would obviously state we're evangelicals, we're we're, uh, grandchildren of the Protestant Reformation. Scripture is our ultimate authority. We believe in sola scriptura, scripture alone. But the Jehovah Witnesses don't believe in that. So while talking about scripture, you have to understand your dialogue with them about scripture based upon their foundation that scripture is really only understood when the governing bodies tell them and as found in the New World Translation. That gives a little hurdle you'll have to jump over. And of course, uh, you know, Charles has told me that he likes to talk with Jehovah Witnesses with the New Living, excuse me, the New World Translation open. The Jehovah Witnesses present the notion that they embrace a form of sola scriptura while at the same time redefining what it means for the Bible to be God's word and what is the Bible at all. Another area is their redefinition of just the term God. Um, Those of you who grew up in uh, the kingdom halls would recognize this very clear. One of the foundational assumptions of the society is that they've restored the divine name, Jehovah. The Watchtower argues that the New Testament autographs all use the tetragrammaton. This statement is founded on the assumption that can neither be substantiated with evidence or denied with evidence since none of the autographs exist. In the book, What Does God Require of Us? It starts with an orthodox statement. And here's some of their examples of redefinitions for the term God. Uh, It starts with with an orthodox statement, but after uh, taking a very close look, you can see that they take a conspicuous exit thereafter. Here's what they state in regard to God. The Bible tells us that there is only one true God. He created everything in heaven and on earth. God has many titles, but has only one name. That name is Jehovah. This quotation demonstrates a similarity to the Nicene Creed which states, we believe in one God, the maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. But the witnesses draw on this similarity to sneak in a claim that they have restored the divine name Jehovah. So they might talk about God, Jehovah, but what they really mean is the the concept that they have created and, of course, imported into their worldview. 
Now, in the book, Insights on Scriptures, this deception is quite evident. And here's what it says in Insight to Scriptures. The true God is not a nameless God. His name is Jehovah. Notice the passage of Scripture that they quote. He is God by reason of his creatorship. The true God is real, a person, and not a lifeless natural law operating without, living, without a living lawgiver, not blind force working through a series of accidents to develop one thing or another. There's a lot of doublespeak going on here when they're talking about God. What is it? Almost all of the above statement is orthodox. But then they place in the name Jehovah. And it's presented as if that is the exclusive name of God. Or as if the witnesses are actually uncovering a truth that church history has left unavailable and didn't know until Charles Taze Russell. Likewise, of course, if you look at that statement, there is not any element of the triune nature of God available. Again, they will take a Christian term, but they'll redefine it according to what the teachings of the Watchtower are. So when talking about God, you have to be ready to address this hurdle in dialogue. Here's another example of a redefinition for God. The Watchtower in January 1973 continues this double speak when commenting on the nature of God. We see God in heaven as a superior one. We see his son on earth expressing delight to do his father's will. Clearly two separate and distinct personalities. Not at all equal. Nothing here, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, to indicate that it, the Holy Spirit, is a person, let alone equal to Jehovah God. Now, this pattern of deception is an example, uh, again, to one similar above. The society sets aside a few orthodox statements besides unorthodox statements when talking about God. And then, of course, they attempt to rewrite the context of the scripture they mention. I mean, the scripture cited in the example is frequently viewed to be a strong text confirming the doctrine of the Trinity. But the society attempts to manipulate the reader, stating nothing here to indicate that it is a person. So rather than allowing the text to communicate the individual person of persons of the Trinity, Trinity all being present together, the society inserts their theology into a statement about God, purposefully changing the meaning of the text. Um, the next one we've dealt with scripture, we've dealt with the doctrine of God. Let's look exactly about how they try to redefine and reuse what they mean when they talk about Jesus. Again, the Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses is the different Jesus than the Jesus of Scripture, obviously. So in defining their position on the deity of Christ, witnesses contend this, as found in Let God Be True, Jesus is a God, but not Jehovah. Now to a Christian with a very shallow understanding of the deity of Christ, this might actually pass as an acceptable statement. But the reality is there's not a distinction, of course, when it comes to God being triune and, of course, Jesus being truly God and truly man. Uh, what does God require of us also picks up on this. Jesus lived in heaven as a spirit person before he came to earth. Now, that's a different Jesus. He was God's first creation. So he is called the firstborn son of God, Colossians 1.15, Revelation 3.14. Jesus is the only son that God created himself. Now this verse cited here, these verses, do refer to Christ as the firstborn of all creation and as the beginning of the creation of God. But they're not arguing that Jehovah 
God created Jesus. Neither of the verses make that argument, in fact. But no, not, but to a person that's not familiar with Scripture, seeing this example can prove exceptionally persuasive because they don't know that the Jesus that's being presented is a different Jesus that's found in the biblical theology of Orthodox Christianity. The verses are not intended to be read in a manner that would convey that Jehovah ever created Jesus. And no one understands, excuse me, and one understands this by, again, applying a consistent hermeneutic to both books. Uh, now we've talked about God, Scripture, Jesus. Let's jump to the way Jehovah Witnesses redefine the term salvation. Um, Joseph Rutherford wrote this in Let God Be True. The doctrine of an all-burning hell, where the wicked are tortured eternally after death, cannot be true. Mainly for four reasons. One, because it is wholly unscriptural. Two, because it is unreasonable. Three, because it is contrary to God's love. And four, because it is repugnant to justice. Now, the witnesses, as they have done with other doctrines, counter to their teachings, choose their position, and then ignore all scripture that runs counter to their belief. Another example comes from uh, the book Reasoning from the Scriptures. The Fendish, me, the Fendish concept associated with a hell of torment and slander, God and origin torment and slander God and originate with the chief slander of God, the devil. Again, there's a redefinition of what people are being saved from. They might talk about salvation, but for a Christian, we are saved from God's wrath by Christ Jesus. Well, God's wrath and God's judgment on sin is not what Jehovah Witnesses mean when it comes to the doctrine of hell. Uh, let's next look at a redefinition for the Trinity. If you've ever had a dialogue with a Jehovah Witness, you can probably recognize this familiar refrain over and over again or misrepresent directly of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I believe that's because not only did Charles Taze Russell not know the orthodox position of the Trinity, I don't think that uh, J.F. Rutherford actually did either. But in his book, Let God Be True, Rutherford defines the Trinity by noting the doctrine, in brief, is that there are three gods in one. Friends, that has never been the orthodox teaching. But in their literature, because remember, where does authority begin? In the teachings of the governing bodies. So what does that authority structure have the ability to do? To implant teachings into members of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, Jehovah Witnesses, this belief that that must be the accurate definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine in brief is that there are three gods in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. All three equal in power, substance, and eternity. Here's another example of uh, Rutherford, again, redefining what Christians mean when they talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. He says here, the clergy have been held to the senseless, God-dishonoring doctrine. If you ask a clergyman... What is meant by the Trinity? He says, that is a mystery. He does not know, and no one else knows, because it is false. Uh, how many of you know the doctrine of the Trinity? Yeah, okay, just that. 
but the presupposition of the individual that knocks on your door on Saturday morning is that you actually don't know. And the only person who really knows what the doctrine of the Trinity is, is what? The governing bodies who have told them what it actually means. Um, one can identify, of course, the fallacy of generalization used in Rutherford's line of argumentation above. Now, one can also recognize his direct refusal to engage church history on this doctrine. Um, these deceptions continue to work out today because many Christians in Protestant denominations fail to present the doctrine as founded foundational of the Christian faith, and most churches don't even teach church history. Why does this misrepresentation work to the Sunday morning, go to church one hour a week, common American evangelical Christian? Because they haven't heard preaching on the doctrine of the Trinity. So when they are told by someone, you don't even know what it means, no Christian knows what it means. They can think back to their Sunday morning worships where they never actually heard it defined or in their Sunday school classes. See, the witnesses are playing to not only their ability to project ideas onto shallow faith Christians, but the reality that most Christians haven't studied church history and can't articulate primary foundational core doctrines. All right, so I'm doing all right, I think, on... On time. With that said, let me jump to what I have after engaging these numerous texts. What I believe are the seven uh, core, what I would say, seven core types of redefinitions or misrepresentations. So I've labeled each of these terms that I've found within a primary source material. And the first way that Jehovah Witnesses redefine Christian terms is the tactic of minimization. What does that mean? Now, this is a method of deception that occurs when the Jehovah Witnesses attempt to minimize a core doctrinal position of Orthodox Christianity. From the Watchtower 1973, we see God in heaven as the superior one. We see his son on earth expressing delight to do his father's will. Clearly two separate and distinct personalities and not at all equal. Nothing here to indicate that it is a person let alone equal with God. They've minimized the doctrine of the Trinity as being important here. They've specifically functioned in and focused in on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as being uh, not a key player in their theology. So they've presented the Christian concepts of the Trinity, because it's in Scripture, but they've minimized the Holy Spirit from that and thereby destroying the Trinity. And of course, they destroy the Trinity by taking the deity of Christ away. They've minimized the essential position that Christ must be truly God and truly man, and they've minimized the reality that the Holy Spirit is, of course, truly, excuse me, is fully God as well. Next category of, of redefinition, that was minimization. Another example we see is in uh, primary source material of the Watchtower is poisoning the well or misrepresenting. Now this is when the Jehovah Witnesses or their literature will intentionally offer a definition of a Christian theological term or, or, or the definition of Christian theological language that does not accurately reflect what the church has historically taught on that. Um, the Jehovah Witnesses will likewise use this redefinition to argue for the absurdity of the Christian position because they 
or because the Colts itself is representative has bolster is bolstered by the misrepresentation and therefore they have the upper hand uh, again i quoted this earlier but here's an example of poisoning the well or misrepresenting common christian terminology the trinity doctrine in brief is that there are three gods in one god the father god the son and god the holy ghost all three are equal in power substance and eternity now what's occurred there is when the jehovah witness knocks on your door or when they deal with you they have already had the well poisoned and so when you contend that this is the christian orthodox position they're not going to listen to you because they've already been told from their authority what it is the christian definition of the trinity is poisoning the well minimization another category of redefinition of terms uh, from my research that jumped out was uh, term switching or just straight up redefining now this deceptive method uses well-known christian theological language but it offers different definitions of those terms other than what is offered by orthodox christianity this comes from what does god require of us it states the bible tells us that there is only one true god he created everything in heaven and on earth god has many titles but has only one name that name is jehovah there they've taken the name of god from christian scriptures and they've redefined what they mean when they talk about god when we as orthodox trinitarians talk about god we mean the triune god not the god of the watchtower and because they're able again to redefine that term they'll have the upper hand again call them out in these types of dialogues you've redefined what the church has taught historically on that that's just the fact another type of redefinition is that of ignoring context and proof texting i had a discussion with a jehovah witness about a month ago and one of the things he accused me of which is really funny he said oh you're you're playing biblical hopscotch with me i said no sir i'm doing biblical theology and systematic theology uh, you can't do either of them and that was the reality but one way they actually do play with the i like the term even though it, I don't like the guy who used it, want him to repent of his sins, that theological hopscotching is to simply proof text and rip things out of context. You all know you've dealt with Jehovah Witnesses on John 17, 3, right? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But that's the only thing they want to talk about in that whole prayer, by the way. And if you try to go somewhere else or actually do biblical theology with the entire book of John... Uh, you can see how Christ is presented throughout it. This technique is often accompanied by a biblical reference, obviously. Occultist literature will attempt to affirm the validity of a heretical position by robbing scripture of hit, its historical, literary, or linguistic context. A great example of this, again, comes from what does God require of us? They say there, Jesus lived in heaven as a spirit person. Wait a second, where in the world do we get that from Scripture? Oh, wait, they tell us here. He lived as a spirit person before he came on earth. He was God's first creation. So he is called the firstborn, Son of God. Colossians 1.15, Revelations 3.14. Jesus is the only Son that God created himself. And in insights on Scripture, they do this. 
The true God is not a nameless God. His name is Jehovah. He is God by reason of his creatorship. The true God is a is real, a person, and not a lifeless natural law operating without a living lawgiver, not a blind force working through a series of accidents to develop one thing or another. Now again, in both of these quotations, they offer scriptural proofs, right? We do that. We like to back things up with scripture. But when we do, and we all do systematic theology, by the way, we offer, we make a statement and we offer the text that, again, affirms that. But when we do that, our goal is always to keep consistent with the historical method, right? What did this mean to the original audience? And of course, the historical grammatical, what does the language mean? And then again, we apply biblical theology to the book itself. And that is from where uh, we derive our our hermeneutical position. Uh, Basically, what they've done is they'll use one text in one place to make that position. And then they'll remove anything around it from that. You've seen this happen. Ignoring the context or proof texting. Another type of redefinition is, of course, revealing deeper truths. Um, This definition is pretty simple. A cult will present the position that they alone hold a critical knowledge base that has been overlooked and misunderstood by Orthodox Christianity. Uh, Again, from Rutherford's Let God Be True, the doctrine in brief is that there are three gods in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, and all three are equal in power, substance, and eternity. The obvious conclusion, therefore, is that Satan is the originator of the Trinity doctrine. One way that a witness will confuse people at the door or in dialogues is by trying to act as if they've revealed something that the church itself has hidden from them. Uh, They're the ones who are lifting the blinds, in other words, and allowing that person to see right for the first time. Another example comes from Rutherford's Reconciliation, where he states, the clergy have even held to the senseless, God-dishonoring doctrine. If you ask a clergyman what it is meant by the Trinity, he says it's a mystery he does not know, and no one else knows because it is false. The clergy are willingly or unwillingly the instrument in the hands of Satan. When you deal with someone who's gone to church one hour a week at a very wishy-washy evangelical service and has never heard a sermon on the Trinity, and someone presses them with the statement, well, do you know what the Trinity means? And they'll probably describe modalism, most likely. They'll say, well, does your pastor know what that means? Can you show me where it is in Scripture? There's a hook there. But I'll reveal to you the deeper truth, says the witness. And of course that, and everyone likes to think that they're smart. I mean, I know I like to think I'm smart. I just have to listen to myself for a while and realize that that's not true. Or talk to my wife and she'll remind me. Um, (laughs) But the reality is, what a a key way to hook people in, to present the idea that I'm the one who's really telling you the truth. I'm the one lifting the blinds for you. And... uh, Another one is that of theological cosmetics or theological camouflage is what I like to call it. Now, in this deception, the Jehovah Witnesses will conceal the more extreme theological components of their faith in statements that are purposely structured to look Christian on the surface. In other words, trying to look more Christian than Christians 
is so often the idea we've really got the real thing. All of the church has been completely lost throughout all of history. This is done really well in the preface, of course, to the New World Translation. Outstanding among Bibles is the New World Translation of the Christian Greek Scriptures. Accuracy, uniformity, clarity. An indispensable help to sincere searching students of the Word of God. The picture is is very clear. If you're really a sincere student of the Word of God, you've got to have this because it's the most clear, it's the most accurate. Oh, and it looks really nice too, this gray Bible that I can hand you. And they love to hand them out. This is the real translation. You've always been told wrong all along. But see, this is, again, I want to kind of look like I'm Christian. Or we're the real Christianity. The final one that I have to present is that of, of mirroring. Uh, This is when the Jehovah Witnesses or any cult uses the exact phrases and concepts of Orthodox Christianity. Uh, They try to offer that they are just like Christianity or possibly another denomination of the Christian faith. This comes from from reasoning from the scriptures. Being born again involves being baptized in water, born from water, and begotten by God's Spirit, born from the Spirit, thus becoming a son of God with the prospect of sharing in the kingdom of God. Jesus had this experience, as do the 144,000 who are heirs with him in the heavenly kingdom. Now, obviously, Christians use the term being born again. Have you been born again? Have you been baptized? Have you been begotten by God's Spirit? The average evangelical pew sitter one hour a week would say, yeah, I've been born again. What do you mean by that? Oh, you, let me tell you what it really means when I show you from Scripture. So I'm going to hook you because you have engaged Christianity in an American evangelical way. But I can really get you because I've got the real thing. See, this looks a whole lot like what you think you have. So now to the implications, and these are pretty simple. Uh, Why did I conduct this research, uh, and why did I think that this was an important thing? Uh, I'm a communication researcher. Uh, I get to teach communication um, at Spurgeon College in Kansas City. Uh, My discipline and my study is in communication theories, rhetorical theories, specifically in rhetorical research methods. I haven't seen anyone do anything quite like this, but the implications are this. We should be, as Christians, prepared for redefinitions of terms, and we should call them out. What a great segue to get the witness off their script. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Each time they use those terms. Again, it gives us an opportunity to say, wait, well, who sets the definition for you? Likewise, we should understand the systemic problem for Jehovah Witnesses in misrepresenting Orthodox Christian teachings. Uh, we can go back to 1977 with, the, with again, uh, Franz being elected president of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. He made a purposeful distinction. We are going to sound more biblical and more evangelical. It's structured in the way that they present themselves now. From the top to the bottom. Neck, and we should, be, we should be aware of that. Next, we should be familiar with theological terms and claim authorities on them. Um, it's pretty easy to recognize that, again, 
The doctrine of the Trinity was defined at three, in 325 of the Council of Nicaea. We should all have that actually in our heads, right? Uh, that was well before Charles Taze Russell or uh, Joseph Rutherford was walking or any other Jehovah Witnesses for that matter. We should be familiar, familiar with theological terms and claim authorities on them. What has Orthodox Christianity meant when it talks about Jesus? What historically has the church always said about Scripture and the canon of Scripture? And who is the authority over Scripture? Now, we should be familiar with church history in reg and uh, in regard to first-level doctrines. Uh, the implications are that we should not accept the use of redefinitions in dialogue when they slip into evangelistic conversations. Go into the conversation knowing that they do not mean what they say. Finally, more research needs to be done by apologists to note where these redefinitions occur in more primary source material. With that.